Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in your bulletins or read along in your Bibles. Let's hear the word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilal and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of God. Good morning. It's good to be back after taking some time off. Um, And uh, ready to learn some things about Joseph here. And um, for me, this is a pretty short scripture reading. Um, Y'all know that. But since I'm rusty, it could be a long sermon. Uh, Gosh, that was a nervous laugh right there. (laughs) So for the next couple of months, we are going to be following the life of Joseph. And this story of Joseph is a critical piece in Jewish history. As the Jews read this, it allowed them to look back And see how they became who they had become as a people. Especially when it came down to their tribal history. At the time of writing and when they would have read this and when they would have received this from Moses, the history, Israel was broken up into 12 tribes or families or let's call them states or parishes. And each tribe was named after one of the 12 sons of Jacob. A man God chose to be the father or patriarch of the Jewish nation. Joseph, the one we are reading about today and we'll do, look at in this series, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, son number 11 out of 12. 
Well, the Bible teaches us that God took number 11 and used him to save and deliver the other brothers. And as Israel looked back and read this story, they would have also recognized that God used Joseph to save all of the tribes and the nation as a whole. What God did through Joseph was God's good news to his people. God's means of salvation, God's mediator, God's chosen vessel at the time to save Israel. Looking back, it was easy for the Jews to see how Joseph was the good news. But he was received and treated at the time like anything but good news. God continues to offer us good news through the gospel, through the person and ministry and message of his son, Jesus Christ. And for those who hear it and receive it, Jesus is good news for your life, for your problems, for your issues. Yet, just like number 11's brothers, we must ask, based on our response sometimes to to much of the good news of God's grace, how could we live and act like we hate The good news. How could we push back on? How could we reject and and be cynical over and not take seriously? How could we take a yeah, right, or come on, or no way, or you got the wrong one attitude and response on it? How could we ever seek to distance ourselves from God's good news of salvation for us? How could even believers in the good news hate how it makes them feel and get all embarrassed and want to hide and not share their good news? How? Because God's good news has a tendency to dig up our story. It has a tendency to come in earthly packages And finally, God's good news calls us to worship. Our passage today tells us that Joseph, before he became the so-called prince of Egypt and deliverer of Israel, was just number 11. But not just number 11, the favored kid of Daddy Jacob and hated brother by the 10 before him. From this passage, we see a few reasons why he could have been so hated. First of all, it took their daddy 10 times, right? 10 human lives to finally be happy about one. And happy enough to buy him a designer outfit, leaving no doubt that the other 10 were just misfires and oops to finally get the one he wanted, number 11. But not only that, number 11 loves his daddy too. They have a relationship where he even tells on the other kids when they don't do right. And if that isn't enough, Joseph talks in dreams like he was a number one draft pick. He got Johnny Manziel syndrome. All swag, but no snaps in the NFL uniform, right? With Joseph having these dreams about all of them being bales of wheat, and they all bow down to his bale of wheat. And then later he has a dream, literally a starry-eyed dream, where the sun and moon and stars, that's not only his brothers, but now mom and dad will all one day bow to him? It is easy to see why Joseph was hated by his brothers. They thought this young buck was smelling himself. He thought he was something. 
But that stink was only the surface stuff because the good news of his presence had dug up something worse. His brother's stories. Stories of hurt and sin. Look with me at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of, the, excuse me, more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably peacefully to him. I want you to notice in, in, in verse 2 that, that it doesn't say Joseph's brother's actual names. But instead, their mama's name, Zilpah and Bilhah. This scripture is calling us to look further back, to dig up the past behind the brother's hurt. So we're going to do that. You see, over 30 years ago, before Daddy Jacob was married, he fell in love with a woman named Rachel. And when he went to Rachel's dad to marry her, he said, okay, but you have to work seven years for me before you can have Rachel. Wouldn't work today. Except for me, I'd work 14 for mine. Well, after seven years, he gets to the honeymoon. That's how they did it. The veils the brides wore back then were thick, right? And the lighting was bad. So they did the honeymoon thing, and the next morning when he turned to her to ask how she liked her eggs cooked, the Bible says that behold, like, bam, like, you get it, right? It, 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 It was Leah, Rachel's older and really ugly sister in bed and not Rachel. The Bible calls her ugly. Daddy did a switcheroo to get the older one off his hands. Well, though upset, Jacob agreed with dad to get the one he really wanted, Rachel, only after promising to work seven more years for him. So after the one-week required honeymoon with Leah, Jacob finally gets Rachel and then begins paying off the marriage for seven years. Well, two wives, one not wanted, the other one wanted, and drama happens. This is like... The housewives of ancient Jewish Palestine show, right? (laughs) And so the drama thickens because Leah, of course, is fertile and Rachel isn't. So Leah quickly has four kids for Jacob and being jealous, Rachel gave, yeah, they did this back then, gave her maidservant, and for those of you who don't watch Downton Abbey, that's like her butleress, right? She gave her butleress to her husband to sleep with. Yep, you guessed it. The one mentioned in verse 2, Bilhah, to Jacob to surrogate children for her. And Bilhah gave Jacob two of the boys mentioned in our passage. And then to get back at Rachel for having the latest, greatest, though surrogate child, Leah gives Jacob her maidservant. Yep, that's right. In your passage, Zilpah, the mom of the two other boys mentioned as growing up with Joseph in our passage. That's 
four sons through concubine for, for sexual relations. Then the Bible tells us that one day Leah's oldest son, Reuben, the first son, went out and got some food, mandrakes, and Rachel wanted some. But Leah snaps back at Rachel and is like, you asking my son, let me emphasize, my naturally born son, to give you some of the food he brought for his mama after you took my husband, marrying him after I already had him. Reality show mess. I don't think so. So things get really serious in that kitchen that day. So Rachel says, that's some crazy stuff. So Rachel says, okay, I'll give you my sex night with Jacob for some of that food. And so Leah goes to Jacob and is like, guess what? Not Rachel again. She sold her conjugal night with you for some snacks. She would rather eat than sleep. I'm going to stop right there. Anyway, of course... Leah gets pregnant again, son number six, and Rachel is just dying and burning with jealousy and sadness. And the Bible says she finally, Rachel finally has a son by Jacob. And his name was, you guessed it, Joseph. So you can see why Leah's kids hated Joseph. All six before him, whose mother, and by extension, they were not really wanted by their father. And then Joseph comes, and Jacob is super happy. And then you can see why the sons of concubines, or better description, wife prostitutes, were uncomfortable about Joseph. No wonder the boys did wrong towards Jacob. Their mothers were just used by by their father. Their dad was little more than, than a John to their pimped out mothers. As a result, of course, they hated and doubted and were distant from and in insecure and fearful of their father for that. And they sinned against him in that brokenness. And Joseph's favor and affirmed legitimacy just worked to bring out their sense of illegitimacy and rejection. It dug up the dead. And the stink of broken relationships and broken promises and just plain family and personal mess. Joseph's blessed presence said to them, you are not blessed and highly favored. Or you don't think you are. You are not living in God's will. You do think and live and maybe you are treated like you are less than you truly are. You are trying to fix things and deal with your hurt on your own. You are failing to heal yourself. You are not really happy. You are carrying a lot of unresolved pain. You are still living according and under a family sin and cyclic curse, you are a sinner. It was Joseph's favor and joy and assurance that ironically was used to bring that stuff out. The so-called good news did this. Well, God's good news not only did this, it does this. You know what the gospel, the good news says about people who are saved by Jesus? 
Stuff they wouldn't say or accept or, or try to put behind them and not face about themselves. In the epistles, the apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, see, be deceived, neither the, um, the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says this, and such were some of you. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to the church. And basically saying, this is what the good news told you and showed you that you were, what you were caught up in, how you were mistaken. You were and maybe living a lie in sin, but not only mistaken. In fact, later the apostle Peter says that once you were not a people, you were nothing right? Nothing in the world's sense of it. You were devoid of security and love and peace. You, you were mistreated and left behind and run, run over and backed over. Mom and daddy were not good to you like they should have. That is what the good news is not afraid to bring up and tease out. What's your story? Where's your hurt? and present that makes you do and think and hope or not hope the way you do? What terrible thing have you or are you doing or what awful violation or suffering have or are you going through? When the good news of God comes, it promises to go where the hurt is. Just by being itself, just by being the gospel, just by being the good news, it promises to go where the sinful history is, to attach itself to the sore place, to touch where the bruises, to shine light on where the sin is, where you are not living and believing rightly, to tell on you, to you, and for you. You see, the good news is the love of God at work to save. But like a doctor... It hurts right here. You know it's going to happen. I almost don't tell a doctor where it exactly hurts. Where does it hurt, Mr. Brown? Right here. Does it still hurt? Yeah. What you think? Promise like a doctor, right, who must touch the sore place and must get the history to heal. The gospel can be, as the Bible says, the friend that wounds. The Bible verse that convicts, the sermon that lifts the top off of it all, the prayer group of person sent by God that won't leave you alone, that breaks the wax seal on your imperfections. And it's easy to hate the good news of your salvation and healing and sanctification because it will go through the bad news and dig up and into the story of the bad news to make you lean on and trust God's good news alone. But not only does the, good, the gospel dig up our story, making it easy to hate, the good news comes in earthly packages. When I say earthly packages, and I, I am not saying there's nothing, that there isn't anything heavenly going on, it just means that, that God's good news comes on earth and through earthly vessels, which means they are finite and often worldly assessments, what we would judge as weak and despised. Look at what it says here in verse 4. 
No, I'm going to go back um, to verse 3. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors. I just realized that again. He made that thing. Okay, moving on. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably, peacefully sorry, to him. And then if we jump down to verse 11 after the dreams, it says this, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now understand why this is crazy. This love of Jacob, this favor of, of Jacob toward Joseph. There are 10 brothers by three women ahead of Joseph. Do you get that? Ahead of him. That means when it comes to territory and households under mothers, he is the least. He is the weakest. Leah's kids could have and should have been the favorite. There are more older, more experienced, and bigger of them, and only one pencil neck daddy's boy and a little kid from Rachel's crew. And if you consider Leah's concubine as being under her, that's count them eight against four. And not only the oldest of the four, the middle one, number 11. Joseph is literally an odd choice. And yet he's determined by daddy's choice in the dream to be the one. The weakest and the least is the choice. Why would Jacob bet all on number 11? At least diversify, right? At least give everybody a piece of the coat. Make some socks. I mean, do something. At least give and put your hopes on the most deserving or accomplished kid. I discussed this Joseph story with a few of you, and almost everyone, myself included, tried to make Joseph out to be some sort of jerk. Had to be, right? A nerd that you just wanted to punch his glasses off or something. Maybe I'm evil. Okay, a nerd, a, a snitch, a goody two-shoes, right? He must have been, he must have been, right, to get that kind of hate. He must have thought he was all of that and acted like it and wore that flashy, I am the greatest, world championship sons, jacket all around his brother's ashy knuckle-working burlap sack, right? Clarence Rack and Super Whack outfits, right? Just to show off and remind them that he was the one. That had to be what was going on. If I wrote the story, I'd, Joseph would be strutting around. What's up, y'all? How's it going in the fields? Can't work with y'all a day, can't get my clothes dirty. Yet the non-haters version of the Bible, truth is this. The Lord God gave Joseph the vision. Brother went to sleep. He couldn't help it. He woke up and he had a dream, right? He, he, he didn't make it happen. He had a dream, right? And, and then he didn't do it. His dad, the Bible says, his dad blessed him with the coat and graced him by no will or earning of his own. Clark went to basketball camp this week, past week. And it was, you know, I got there a little early. So I'm kind of watching kids run around, 
Wondering why my boy's sitting down where they did a little bracket and his team lost. So I'm just watching the other kids play. I saw one kid out there. He was a little out of shape looking. He was always last getting to the end of court. They were throwing the ball. He'd bounce it off his foot. Now I look at Kelly. I'm like, you know, it's good that he's out there. He needs to learn some coordination. He needs to get in shape. You know that? That's good for kids like him. I'm sure that frustrates the other kids, though, Kelly. Their team can't win because every time they hand it to him, he's dribbling it off his knee or he's throwing it to the wrong team. So Kelly says, but look at his face. I'm like, what? Look at his face. He was the only kid smiling all the way. Right? He's smiling and bouncing the ball on his foot and missing the ball. And he would mess up and smile and run down. The last one to the line. Yay! And something rose up in me that was like, he shouldn't be smiling. He shouldn't get to be happy out there and unbothered by the fact that he was slow and not as in shape and holding everyone up and making everyone else mad while he enjoys whatever. I was even a little jealous of that kid's vision of himself and what he was doing. Wish I could be happy and mess up. Like Joseph, everyone on the basketball team had to bow to whatever vision of joy outside of the competitive camp that he had. Maybe it was his mom or something his mom and dad told him. Maybe he opened his, his, his lunch thing and it said, I love you, son, no matter how you perform. Maybe it was something given to him and he wasn't mean about it. He just wore it, right? He just had it. And it made me question and jealous and want him off the team if he's on my son's team. It is easy to despise joy and love and grace. That's not a part of our story that we don't feel, that has escaped us, or that we have sold out to be ambitious. Smiley's kids, smiley kids sense of worth and purpose was from and about something outside of the score. Imagine that. Outside of the game, outside of the standard of usefulness and performance, the kid was metaphorically wearing the colorful coat of someone else's affection and hope and love for all the driven and angry and scorekeeping and sensitive world to see and dread. you know what the gospel, the good news is? Do you know what it says? We read it this morning, that it is by grace you are saved. You know what that means? What, what, what that, the hard side to that is? That God rejects you earning or deserving his love and favor. God rejects you having the strength 
to get it. God rejects you having the right resume to get his love. It is God's vision and unconditional love of you that really saves you. And in that, that God uses and loves on the people, those people and things that are odd, that are weak and undeserving to wear joy and righteousness. He chooses the weak and easily despised things and people with broken stories to hold a vision of redemption for a world that is stronger and even against them. God himself came as a carpenter's son. Jesus, a lowly Jew, not a Roman, a Jew, right? They didn't rule nothing back then in the form of a mere man. And then he decided to leave his truth in a book and then to really make it hard. Y'all ready? To really make it hard, he decided to make the church. Oh, Lord, he went downhill when he decided to make y'all the ones. An institution of really weak and struggling people to be the vision bearers and blessed, righteous bearers of his truth by no earning of their own. And that makes us and the world hate sometimes. Think about church people and the gospel they wear. I have to wonder why, God. Why would you put your coat of righteous and favor on us oddballs? On these far from choice, less than world beaters, these runner-ups, these weak, lowly in the eyes of the world, losers, and then loose them, your church on in any world with the heart to accept a wonderful truth that God loves, chooses, uses, and blesses sinners and the broken by grace. Let me tell you, for some of you out there, and I join you sometimes, It is easy to want to be cooler or stronger or more sophisticated and informed than to let your heart be melted and reached by the truth. It's easy to hate and despise being one of those born-again people. You know the types, the ones not like you. It's easy to despise that God has clothed some of you with a righteous, righteousness and giving a vision of his salvation through Jesus that makes you an oddball and makes you afraid to be accused and hated like Joseph who dream according to the gospel. Do you think about your dream, believers. Think about the dream God has given the world. Salvation by grace, through faith in Christ, not to be earned. That's a crazy dream. And that is going to triumph over the world? Over the big guys? Over the, over the bloodiness in our, in our world? All the, all, all the conflicts? All the political mess? That truth? That weak gospel? It just makes you hate. The gospel is like that little kid out there. And that's going to win? It's easy not to want to become like that kid on the basketball court and in doing so, miss. I said miss, not the basket, but miss the freedom and joy of living in and under God's favor. Stop hating and despising and receive the true vision and dream of God's unconditional keeping, saving, never forsaking, never leaving love for you and others. 
Because guess what? The dream of the good news is true. God will deliver people from and triumph over the effects of sin in this broken world. And like Joseph saw in the gospel teaches, he will call people, all people, to worship him. The most humiliating and hateful thing that could have happened in the story as far as his brothers and fathers were concerned was those dreams. He could have stopped at the coat, but then he had to have a dream. That made it look like God was saying, or Joseph was, was saying, God was saying, that Joseph was not only going to rule over them, but more than that, that they would have to bow to what God was doing through Joseph to be saved. The dreams meant that they owed their sense of life and purpose to whatever Joseph was doing and about. Even Jacob had a hard time hearing it when the second dream came along, and it showed Daddy having to bow to him one day. At, in verse 10, it says this, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to you, come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers are jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Jacob, I'm sure, of daddy was like, that coat has no hood, son, but it's gone to your head. Something's messed up. The Bible says that Jacob took note of it, that it could be God talking, but his brothers were like, no way, Jack, we bowing to you. You must have had some mandrakes after midnight because number 11, you off, dude. The boys, Kelly and I, we, we recently went and saw the movie Divergent. Y'all, anybody see that? Raise your hand if you saw that. Okay, that's enough of you. <clears throat> anybody read the book? More? Boy, you're some educated people. I hate reading a book. I'd rather see the movie. Um, but we saw the Divergent. I basically read the book by seeing the movie. Based on a book series that's out, I majored in English. Isn't that what they teach you? Okay. And the premise of the movie and books is that after some catastrophic world war collapse of society, that a new order was established in this one city-state in which to stop the conflict, they divided people into factions. And you had to be in one of these factions, right? Factions are areas in which you were gifted and would be forced to serve in that role the rest of your life and family's life until your kids were old enough to choose their own faction, usually the one they came from, but not always. Well, there were five factions. Amity, the happy farmers. Candor, the brutally honest and truthful judgmental folk. The erudite, can't say that word right, the scientists, the brilliant thinkers, the smart ones. Dauntless, the wild athletic warriors and pulley soldiers. And then finally, abnegation. The servants, the ones who looked to the needs of everyone else, the servants of society. They didn't even have, they had mirrors, but you can only look at it like two minutes a day. And they had these tests to help you make your decisions, to see where you best fit. And we watched the movie, blah, blah, blah. It was good. Well, we went to lunch, the family went to lunch after the movie, and I asked which group we thought we fit in. Of course, almost, almost all of us said dauntless, because we warrior people. <laughs> They're having fun. they jumping out of trains while it's moving. They look cool. And you know what? They had the best food, right? So dauntless, shooting guns and all, yeah. Then we're like, well, maybe we're erudite. We're smart. We're brilliant. And then Clark was, maybe I'm Amity. You know, I like plants. I like just to be happy. 
And then it was, oh, maybe we're a candor because we're honest people. We're honest. And that's where it stopped. Nobody said, I'm abnegation. You know what's strange? This vision of Joseph has is a clear picture of the glory of the gospel and its power to make us be and do what we all hate in one way or another, to bow, to give our power over to another, to serve, to give glory to for someone else. Yet that is what Christianity is. It is calling those of us who've been in our dauntless, erudite, amity, candor to bow to God's will. To take the ways we think will make it happen for ourselves and abnegate to God's way, will, and Savior, Jesus Christ. But when we see the vision of it, it is easy to fight or think happy, think or be happy or keeping it real our way out of what can and will save us and make us right and forgiven and free. And the Bible says here that they were jealous of Joseph. You know what really interesting thing about you and me? We are jealous of God's position if we're honest. We want to control our lives. And we don't want to give him all the glory to make him ultimately responsible for our glory by giving it over to him. We can hate what is true. Christ alone is our salvation and nothing and no one else. There is nowhere else to go. There is no other vision or faction that is true but the one of you and me in this world bowing a knee and worshiping him and saying we entrust our lives to you. I give up living the way I want. I give up fighting and thinking and seeking happiness and truth on my own. You are right. I abnegate my life to you, Lord. Abnegation is good news. You see, the vision meant that Joseph brothers will one day benefit from the way their sins forced Joseph to suffer so that he could be in a position to save them. Right now, this Eventually, football camps will be starting up. You know, you watch ESPN. And there's always a guy in the red jersey at practice. And the guy in the red jersey at practice usually wears a number like 11, right? Usually, it's the quarterback or somebody hurt, right? He's too special to get hit, right? He, he's too important to be hit. So when you get up there, don't touch him. He's the big money man, the quarterback. But in the kingdom... Rare jersey means take your pain out on that one. Joseph Colt was not red but multicolored. And I want to believe, though it's not true, they don't say that, but I want to believe that it had 12 stripes on it that said, I will take the hit. I will take the pain away. I will restore I will redeem the issues and problems of every tribe, every story, every hurt, every pain. His coat said, God is going to send a redeemer, a savior one day, who will be hit by our sin, our stories, so that we can wear God's uniform of love. Worship! Bow down your lives! 
give your struggles to the one who has, is, and was willing to and sent by God to not just run your life, but pay the cost to take the ruin of your life as his responsibility to cover and fix it. What is so often received by us as a picture of failure and self-deprecation that we can't handle our guilt and sin or life on our own is the good news that we can give it up and over to Jesus. Bow down. Stop hating and give your hate to him. Give your story to him. Give your weakness to him. Bow it down and over to him and trust the one in Jesus to be your good news. 